I have a story for you. About 10 years ago, I stumbled onto a website that, for all intents and purposes, appeared a legitimate portal to the Department of Heuristics and Research on Material Applications, or the Dharma Initiative. Its Japanese-inspired logo reported scientific credibility. Its many pages revealed grants that had gone to experiments and listed scientists and their latest discoveries. It had a contact page, an about page, a page about what it was like to work there, even job openings. Being a uh, nosy computer nerd, I snooped around the source code and came across some peculiar lines of code. There was a security hole which I quickly took advantage of. Soon I was deep into restricted areas of the site that spoke of a special experiment on a remote island whose participants included Jack, Saeed, Hugo, Kate, and so on. I cannot tell you how much time passed. I can only relate to you that my fingers tingled and my heart raced. I had become an active participant in an alternate reality game for the TV show Lost, and it changed my understanding of narrative forever. There is, there is nothing to writing. All you do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed and bleed and bleed. Welcome to episode 22 of Bleeding Ink. Things are changing with this podcast. It will forever be about writing, but I'm taking it beyond the act of writing a novel. I'm exploring new media from here on out. Expect interviews with media inventors, with pioneers who are reshaping narrative as we know it. And as always, please visit bleedingink.fm. That's B-L-E-D-I-N-G-I-N-K.fm to stay up to date on the show. Now, today it is my honor to present and interview with uh, such an inventor. His name is Sean Stewart, and he's helped create a new genre for storytelling, alternate reality games. Alternate reality games turn storytelling on its head. It allows for incredible agency from participants and distributes a narrative through familiar real-world channels. Characters, email readers, text readers, call readers, readers, or should I say players, solve puzzles that not only unlock more story, but become part of the story. If at any point an ARG, or an alternate reality game, breaks the sacred oath by revealing that it might be a game, it has failed. This is not a game, quote-unquote is what immerses the audience into an alternate world, and such immersion it is. Fans of ARGs have reported broken marriages, lost jobs, and a total obsession with uncovering the quote-unquote truth. It is storytelling dipped in heroin-laced dark chocolate, swaths of communities formed to conquer them. The bonds formed between players are long-lasting. Sean has even been invited to a few weddings of players who've met through an ARG. ARGs are cultural events. Their power lies in their transience, and they present an experience like Woodstock or Burning Man, where congregations sever themselves from society, meet with purpose, shed egos, and join something larger than themselves, if only for a brief moment. A moment that ripples throughout the world. At one point, I Love Bees had over 1 million players. And that's an ultra reality game we're going to get to. What writer wouldn't want to engage their readers in such a way? And hey, as a reader, wouldn't you want to experience that just at least once? Coming up, Sean and I talk about his entry into writing for ARGs. How Steven Spielberg helped form a dream team for what is now known as The Beast the first modern ARG that Sean contributed to. We discussed transmedia fiction and how Sean's novel Kathy's book was the first of its kind and how it hit the New York Times bestsellers list. 
We discuss games, augmented reality, Dungeons and Dragons, the components to ARGs, approaches to non-linear storytelling, and much, much more. I promise you this episode will blow your mind as it did mine. And here I am, happy to present my interview with Sean Stewart. Enjoy. So, Sean, um, thank you for, for appearing on the show today. And um, for those who don't know who you are, go ahead and tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, I guess the easiest way to say it is that I was a mild-mannered science fiction and fantasy novelist uh, until 2001, and at which point I was bitten by a radioactive Spielberg <laughs> and assumed a alternate identity as a guy who did uh, online and transmedia storytelling. Um, I was asked to be the lead writer for a uh, online project for the Spielberg film AI, um, which sort of turned into what we now call uh, the world's first alternate reality game, or ARG. Um, so it's basically a big online narrative that rolled out serially like a Dickens novel. Um, but it was one of the first pieces of storytelling to kind of tell a story the way the internet wants to tell a story um, to a whole bunch of people simultaneously, but in a world before Facebook and Twitter had been invented. Um, to use a whole bunch of different storytelling platforms, uh, video or text or email, um, to make the characters accessible um, through the same channels that real people and things are accessible. So they might write you your personal email or call you on your actual phone or um, otherwise just shift where the story was centered from being something that was a private experience for you that happened on a box like a television or a console to becoming a collective experience um, where the story came to you regardless of a book or a TV screen or a, just wherever you were in your life and whatever you were doing, the story might come and touch you there. Um, so that sort of created a, a, a little fission point um, in my career, so from from that moment, I was both writing novels and doing all these sort of strange online or or digital experiences. Mm -hmm. um, how many novels had you written uh, when you were approached to do the ARG? I think. Um, well, let's not talk about how many written because. <laughs> <laughs> that would require me to tell how many I had written that not published. I had published eight, I guess, and the ninth one was coming out. Uh, in 2001? Yeah, no, maybe that was seven and eight. Oh, wow. Interesting. Okay, let's talk. I, I, I definitely want to deep dive into the, the ARG stuff, but of your traditional novels, like what has been your most successful effort thus far? Um, well... Probably, um, 
Well, commercially, without a doubt, it's um, something called Kathy's Book, which is a mm-hmm. transmedia novel. Mm-hmm. Um, because that one was a, a, a New York Times bestseller and an international bestseller and has been published in a lot of countries um, and had some sort of fun experimental parts to it. Considered artistically as a book, um, there are a couple of books set in Texas. Um, the one that came out the same year that that we did the first ARG um, won something called the World Fantasy Award um, for for best book published that year, best fantasy novel mm. called Galveston. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think most people would pick um, either it or a book called uh, Perfect Circle. Mm, yeah, as as the best with. Votes being cast by various for others, but I think those two are those two in a book called Mockingbird are probably the places to start. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so, how were you? How did someone even consider you for this new sort of art form, this ARG? Like, how did how were you in the line of sight, and how did you? I mean, how did that even come to be? So, um, the original idea for the the AI project. Um, was that instead of doing a normal sort of sequel, what might be interesting would be to build out the entire world around the book and use that as a context in which many different things could happen. Um, And part of the idea for this kind of storytelling um, occurred to a guy named Jordan Weisslin, who's a, a brilliant, innovative Tom Sawyer of the gaming industry, who is always finding another fence to paint. So he was from the gaming industry. Yeah. Uh, Very cool. Okay. He had had a, if for those, we'll do a momentary deep dive on gaming history. Jordan um, first started a company called FASA, um, okay. which if you were playing role-playing games in the eighties and nineties, um, you would remember um, mm-hmm. FASA stands for Freedonian Aeronautical and Space Administration. So <laughs> if the Marx Brothers had settled the moon, FASA is the company that would have done it. So that tells you a lot about Jordan right there. Yeah. So he had been interested since he was a teenager in the Beatles mystery. I don't know if you remember this stuff about mm-hmm. uh, theoretically Paul McCartney was dead and there were clues embedded in the cover of Sergeant mm-hmm. Peppers, and you only knew you'd be able to decode a phone number, and if you called Abbey Road Studios on a certain time, then Ringo would pick up the phone and give you a clue. Like, oh, wow. There was this whole underground conspiracy around the Beatles, and um, when the internet came along, Jordan said, hey, I think we could do that now, but for realsies. Whoa. Um, so he, he had that idea for for how the internet could tell a story to a group of people. And um, at the same time, Microsoft had decided to get into business with Hollywood, as it does uh, periodically. And they had thought the best way to do that would be to get in business with Steven Spielberg. Um, They had given him a license um, without having read the script um, to AI. They said, let's get in business on your new science fiction novel. Um, 
They had meanwhile bought some of Jordan's companies and made him head of the gaming division. Um, so eventually the script for AI landed on Jordan's desk with the note, we need to make some games around this. And then Jordan read the script, and I don't know if you've seen AI, but it is not a movie you come out of thinking, oh my God, got to play the game. Yeah, the first-person shooter, AI. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't seem like it would make sense. <laughs> Small orphaned boys appear in your scope, and yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a terrible idea. <laughs> um, so Jordan, who is endlessly inventive and creative, thought, okay, like no one came out of Schindler's List saying, gotta play the game. <laughs> but, but the movie takes place in the context of the Second World War. And if you give me the whole Second World War, I can make lots of games. I can make shooters, I can make adventure games, whatever. So what if we were to build the context all around the movie and then use that as an ecosystem in which all kinds of different experiences could occur? And he pitched that idea to Steven Spielberg and Kathleen Kennedy, his producer, mm -hmm. and they liked it. And it struck everyone as a way to move forward on doing something really innovative. But... The um, Hollywood people were not happy with the idea of just having some guy at Microsoft do the writing. Mm -hmm. So Kathleen Kennedy approached a science fiction writer uh, she knew mm -hmm. because she had had for years the option to make a film out of a book called Snow Crash mm. by a guy named Neil Stevenson. I can't believe there's still not a film based on Snow Crash. It blows my mind. At but Hollywood, it's a thing. I know, yeah. <laughs> so, so Kathleen Kennedy um, phoned up Neil and said, hey, hey, we're doing this kind of innovative project um, and wondered if you'd be interested. And Neil said, um, well, actually the whole book writing thing is going pretty well for me right now. <laughs> but I have a broke friend. <laughs> and that is where I enter this story. Wow. Um, so uh, Jordan gave me a call, um, knowing nothing about me and not having, to the best of my knowledge, read anything I'd written, but just on the strength of Neil's recommendation. Uh, and he started sketching out uh, the idea for the thing and what it might be fun, how it might be fun to work on. Um, and about, uh, you have to understand at this point, that my role in science fiction was very much as a sort of literary with a capital L science fiction writer. Very got it. Okay. Very by the standards of SF, pretty highbrow. Uh, so hence the, the the broke part of your situation. <laughs> well, yeah, I wouldn't put it exactly that way, but let's just yes, I was not in the same position Neil was in. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this this all concealed a number of terrible and dark secrets. Um, and about ten minutes through this conversation, uh, Jordan said, "So, by any chance, do you know what a role playing game is?" <laughs> but, uh, well, if you're looking for someone who's played Empire of the Petal Throne with the RuneQuest damage tables, that would be me. Yeah. Um, and he laughed and said, there might only be 10 people in Seattle who even understood that sentence, but I am one of them. 
Oh wow! So that was that was my secret Masonic handshake was the fact yeah. that before I was a highly respectable novelist, I was that kid who played every imaginable. I was the kid who didn't play D and D because D and D wasn't was the <laughs> RPG that like everybody was playing. The cool kids of, played D and D. That was way too mainstream yeah, for you. That was way too mainstream. So I <laughs> I grinned <laughs> looking back at my. Teenage self. Uh, oh, so, yes, I was. A, <laughs> yeah, I was hilarious. a post D and D hipster <laughs> RPG player, um, which is not normally a recommendation for. Uh, That's amazing. Okay, for a job, but has worked out really well for me. And in fact, as it turned out, I had, I had, you know, been part of running a LARP for me, yeah. and I had written murder mystery dinner theater. Mm-hmm. through college and all these things are essentially slightly improvised um, storytelling for real time collective audiences, which perfect turns out to have been a very useful skill. <laughs> that's 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 so funny. That's so mind boggling. So, so it's that when people say that LARPing can't lead to <laughs> career, tell them no. It's amazing because I've seen that transition especially in the sci-fi fantasy world war authors were very into rpgs um max gladstone was one of them he he played a ton of rpgs and that was really a big part of his life that sort of um i, th- I think that's how you pronounce it but the palaver the whole idea of a campfire talk yeah. and, and how the, how he constructed worlds based on that and that naturally led him to write his sci-fi novels and um it's it's uh it, I, I mean you can see the leap i mean it's i mean yep. maybe not to transmedia, which is very interesting and, and hilarious, but, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's awesome. So anyways, so Wiseman and you hit it off like crazy. And, um, um, so he built a team around, around you and, and how, 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 how was this team constructed? Uh, well, Jordan had a lot of contacts. I mean, obviously he had some of the resources at Microsoft game studio and he also had people he'd known, you know, from various past adventures Mm-hmm. So the the core of the team was uh, Jordan and his sort of right hand guy, uh, uh, a young designer named Yolan Lee, mm-hmm. um, who was at Microsoft, and myself, and then a friend of Jordan's named Pete Fenlon, um, who runs Iron Crown Games, which they have the the North American license for Settlers of Catan, and that is... Oh, wow, okay. Um, So, so if you ever... During the course of this first um, alternate reality game, um, the the shadowy masterminds behind the game, since we didn't admit it was a game or in any way Mm -hmm. our presence, but we were there, the players eventually began to uh, refer to us as puppet masters, and if you look at the credits at the end of the uh, movie AI, you will see Jordan, Elon, Sean, and Pete are there under uh, with the credit Puppet Master. Oh, wow. This is why I have an IMDb list that says <laughs> I work for Stan Winston's workshop. Wow. As some intern said, Puppet Master, I guess they were with the effects crew. So <laughs> I can now find... Um, a, a trail that suggests that I used to work for the for the special effects house. <laughs> that. um, that's that's awesome. So, 
that the ARG that surrounded AI came to be known as as the beast, right? Correct. Let's let's um just describe a typical scenario that one who who is playing that game might experience, and and um, maybe even talk about how you know you went into constructing that sort of scenario for them. That's an interesting. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about how the game started. Um, sure. There was a trailer um, coming out for the film, and uh, it was scrutinized as as trailers are. We all understand this path very well now, but it was it was less obvious back then, um, unless you were sort of pretty into the internet scene. Um, now, I'd like to remind you real quick that this is back in 2001, pre-MySpace, pre-Facebook, so not, not many people were into the internet at that point. But we made a, in the, in the credit block in the trailer and in the posters for the film, um, we inserted a credit, which was for Janine Sala, sentient machine therapist. And then we just waited, and we waited, and we waited, and we waited, dying a little inside, for <laughs> someone to say, what even the hell is a sentient machine therapist? And look it up online. Yeah. Uh, and eventually, uh, a guy named Otaku House, uh, as a screen name. Interesting. Um, uh, went on a site for sort of upcoming movies and stuff and said, hey guys, when I do look up this like sentient machine therapist chick, there's like a whole webpage and she works at a whole university. It's called Bangalore World University and it's got a New York campus and there are like links out from her site and it links to like her daughter's site. And everything seems to be happening in the year 2142. And what even the hell? Yeah. <laughs> and this got carried over to a, a slightly bigger movie site called Ain't It Cool News. And mm-hmm. at that point, it exploded. So they had, after three weeks of no one finding our thing, there were a thousand messages in a couple of hours as people sort of found... Janine Sala's website, and then found that it was linked to the Bangalore World University site, which was, you know, 70 departments deep, like you could go look at the front page of the meteorology department at Bangalore World University. And and the world was big. There seemed to be hundreds of pages worth of stuff, none of which admitted that it was anything but just the regular world of 2142. So... The experience of finding the game would be someone would say, hey, have you seen this thing? And send you a URL and you'd go and there would be this world and then you'd find Janine's site and it would say, hey, can't take your call right now. If you have to reach me, here's my number. And you could call that phone number. And on the phone message, he was saying, I'll get back to you as soon as I can. I'm at the funeral of my close friend, Evan Chan, um, here in North Carolina. Uh, I'll be gone for the weekend uh, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. And if you then looked up Evan Chen, you would find the report on how he had died and it would said that he had drowned, but he was an excellent sailor and swimmer. And you'd think, well, that's not suspicious at all. And then suddenly, <laughs> in the murder mystery. That is 
Okay. So was Janine your character? Did you did you come up with her? Sure. I mean, we were all working together, but okay. yeah, the Can you describe the writing process? Like you said you came up with to get you came up with her together. Like how did you so, go about making this world? So the writing process the the first thing that I pitched um to Jordan was we're, we're going to have to not just tell the story of the film because the film was going to tell the story of the film, mm-hmm. but, and we weren't, in fact, it was not going to be obvious to anyone for months after the game started that this had anything to do with AI because that script mm-hmm. was under wraps and no one knew anything about it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, other than a few people who knew the Brian Alda short story on which the script had been based. Um, gotcha. Okay. Uh, so at any rate, there was going to be no, there was no marker that Microsoft was doing this or DreamWorks was doing this. Um, we anonymized, you know, when we bought websites, you couldn't track back who had bought the website. Um, we concealed the DNS information because a lot of new guys at the DNS service who would do that. Like we, it was a senseless project. And in fact, um, Jordan, Jordan's boss, Elon, and three art guys were the only people at Microsoft who had any idea we were doing this. It oh was kept absolutely God. secret. And in fact, as it gained traction, people would run into Elon's office and say, oh my God, dude, there's this amazing thing. You've got to see this. And oh my God. have to go there and pretend to be amazed about this thing that we were actually <laughs> building. Um, but we couldn't tell anyone in or out of Microsoft. So Microsoft had no idea they were doing this. Yeah, this is boggling my mind. How did you come up with all that content? Then, I mean, how big was the team that would go and create these websites and do all these things and these puzzles, like and do it under wraps? So um, there was three art staff, uh, mm-hmm. uh, three or four at Microsoft. There was uh, Jordan would help brainstorm. Elon and I did the bulk of the design and Pete hired some guys and there was a web dev team of at three mountain. Uh-huh. Uh, the total team was really, really small. <laughs> so that, that, I, yeah, content, that sounds, I mean, Ilan and I worked a hundred hours a week for six months. Um, so it was Goodness. it was sixteen hour days, one after another, after another, after another, after another, after another, after another, um, which would not be sustainable except that uh, it took off in such an amazing way, and mm-hmm. the audience was so inspired and inspiring that it was. Mm-hmm. I realize it's two a.m., but this will really be awesome. And anyway, we have to push it live in four hours. so so do you have a rough estimate about like the 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 total size of the team at at when it was biggest or just the 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 number of people at any one time working on it time there i don't know three or four guys three or four web dev guys um three or four people eventually that i got doing extra writing um and then people that you use periodically, if you shoot video, right, you need a yeah. 
to run the camera and a guy to do the editing and whatnot. But yeah, but an enormous amount of the work was done by you know eight dudes. That uh, is, I I was under the impression it was much much larger than that. That is boggling. Yeah. yeah wow. There was a funny moment in the. Um, there's a funny moment in the story in which the there is a little team that one of the characters you're following is part of an underground who's basically trying to be the underground railroad for sentient machines. So they're trying mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. get 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 these intelligent conscious beings, rec- uh, you know, to escape from being property and become just, mm-hmm. sure. Um, And uh, I had sort of written a little bit in code about the experience of trying to to work on this project. Um, And the character says, you know, it's so it's an endless amount of work and there are so many of them and so few of us. And it's impossible to keep up with all the things you have to do. And there's always this thousand-eyed monster constantly surveilling you and constantly trying to hunt you down. Um, and so he writes this little sort of diary entry, and then, and then the players read it and said, "Oh my God, they're talking about us. We're just like yeah. them." And said, "No, and I'm sitting there at home thinking, no, you're the bad guys in this. <laughs> <laughs> Not writing about you. There are thousands of you. There's like eleven of us." Oh. Okay, so you said you were working crazy hours during that six month span, and that was while you were playing Puppet Master, right? That was the yeah. um, interactions with this 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 new audience. I think they came to be known as Cloud Masters or Cloud Makers Cl- was the Cloud Makers, the name of the sort of Yahoo board named after yeah. the, the <laughs> named after the boat of the character who drowned, who turns out not to spoil the story to be a very important character because, you know, sentient boats happen. And also because the players called themselves cloud makers. So the cloud maker was going to figure in the story in some yeah. kind of way. Well, look, so, so, so the inherent challenges though, it wasn't just the generating that, the, the insane amount of content that was required for that, but it was also the dialogue that took place between you, your team and this, this, uh, this group of people. Um, I could, but like, it's interesting cause I could see how that would consume you, but it would be, and especially with your background in RPGs, um, you, I, I can imagine just completely losing yourself in a yeah. world like that because you would be living in this beautiful sort of narrative that is constantly taking place and evolving. It's crack for writers. Like, if yeah. I write a novel, the best thing that happens to me is like 11 months after I turn it in, there might be a nice review in the Washington Post. Yeah. When I was writing on The Beast, I would finish at 4 a.m. It would be published at nine the next morning on the, on a series of websites and there would be a thousand excited comments on it happening in real time over the next four uh, hours. Yeah. Like that, that feedback loop must have been just so addicting. <laughs> at, at, the, at the end of writing novels, you get maybe a check and a few newspaper reviews at the end of ARGs, you get invited to people's weddings it's a very different yeah. experience. Yeah. I, I literally have been invited on many occasions to the weddings of people who met and fell in love and married <laughs> because they met doing these games and felt 
enough of a connection to the people making them that they wanted them to be part of the wedding. Yeah. Um, so to answer a question that you left hanging um, mm-hmm. about <clears throat> the writing process and and how much you do in advance and how much is sort of co-created with the mm-hmm. with the players. Um, the first idea I pitched Jordan was AI is the story of uh, this little boy who who is brought into the family who has one son and he be, he's intended to be like a second son. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually, you know, the the human brother doesn't love having an extra <laughs> little brother and things fall apart in the family. So I said to Jordan, well, let's pick up as one of our core characters, let's look at that brother as a grown-up who now has to carry the guilt for when he was 10 and was sort of obnoxious or jealous, he ended up being complicit in this sort of tragic story and what does that do to a guy? And then we felt like we also wanted a lead character who is female and sort of had some snap to her. And so those were... Uh, Martin and Laya were two of our core characters, but the character, the third, ultimately um, completely central character, came about utterly by accident because we had written a hacker underground site. There was essentially a site for the equivalent of the FBI, and. We wrote another site, which was like the Hacker Underground, and then we put it in the HTML for the FBI site, commented out. So players had to view the source code for the FBI site and then notice that there was a whole bunch of stuff that didn't seem, that seemed extraneous, and then pull it out into a block and then try running it as an HTML site, and then they would discover there was this whole other embedded thing. And uh, in part of the chit-chat of the sort of hacker underground, um, the web developer guys randomly added a sound loop because they thought it would be cool. And the sound loop was some web dev in Chicago in a fake Russian accent saying, hacked and cracked by Red King. (laughs) And it came out and we were like, started seeing the boards. Oh my God, who is this red King? And I was like, who is this red King? Because I'm writing this and I don't know. (laughs) And so I went and listened to the site and found that they had added this sound loop and the players were wildly obsessed with this character. So I thought, uh, okay, I guess the red King is a thing now. Oh Um, my goodness. So for the next update, I had to write this character into the story. And I wrote a guy who is essentially the players you know, their their surrogate, their their alter ego, um, who is this, you know, eighteen year old kid trying to do the right thing and with a slightly scandalous background. Um, but that came about just because the web devs threw in a random line and the players really, really, really wanted it to be cool, so we made that happen for them. I don't know if there's any other, inst- I mean, 
are there any other places where writing takes that sort of organic shape <laughs> um in any other in any other space right now where i mean i mean where an accidental sound loop can create a character that um i i, I just don't i don't know it's certainly very unusual it's a very hot relationship between the the audience and the yeah, theater. that's. And, um, I mean, improv comedy has some of these elements. Jazz music has true. These elements. Yeah, yeah. But it's very unusual. It's not like writing a novel. Um, it was. It would be more common, like if you were if you were Dickens and you were writing a surreal novel, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. then you'd listen to what people say. And if Dickens had been also able to go and hang out in the chat rooms when people were reading great expectations he would have said oh right. god that's a great idea well, yeah. whoops screwed that up or nobody's <laughs> getting what i'm doing with you know this character so I'll, i should tweak it a bit yeah so, so um uh, so now now that the beast is over and you also participated in i love bees is that yeah that's is that right. right that was the next next thing we did <laughs> and was it the same amount of insanity and the same amount of i mean was it like very similar to the beast. And we, we designed it in advance so that it would not be quite so much work while we were doing it. We could put more of it in the can. Um, in okay. So w- w- yeah. What did you learn from the beast and how did you apply it to the, I love bees campaign, which was for halo too, right? The, launch of the game. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, for those who don't know, um, the Halo team came to us and said, listen, we want the launch of Halo 2 to be not just a game marketing thing, but a cultural event. Um, and we said, okay. And, and what's It's not a tall order. And they said, well, you know, aliens come to Earth and stuff blows up. And we said, okay. So aliens come to Earth, cultural event. Um, well, that's like War of the Worlds, right? That's That's the thing that ticks that box is, is the Orson Welles War of the Worlds broadcast. Um, and so we started thinking about, um, well, we could do a radio play. That's an interesting mm. medium that <coughs> people haven't used. But how would you get paying for the airtime would be impossible to get the kind of coverage you need. What we really need is like like little pirate radio stations, but we need them all over the world, so people can do this all over the world. And we sat there staring at one another for a while. And then Elon said, you know, there is one kind of radio station audio delivery thing that's distributed all over the world. And I looked at him and said, eh? And he said, well, there are pay phones. Ah. So we ended up writing a six-hour radio drama and distributed it in 45-second chunks to payphones all over the world. So, that, <laughs> so that well, what year was this? This is 2004. 2004. Or, yeah, then. they were all yeah, I know. way, which we did not fully apprehend until we tried to. Anyway, a whole other story. But um, yeah, so players would be given basically a time and a GPS coordinate and just. If they cared to show up, they could show up. And on the first day, of course, they had no idea what they were showing up for. And then they'd be standing around in the street wondering what was supposed to happen. And then ring, 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 ring from this empty payphone box. Um, and they would, you know, go over and pick up the phone and then 
be down the rabbit hole into the world of 26th century Halo invasion. Um, so one of the things we learned was, oh my God, it's a lot of work to respond to people on the fly um, for everything all the time. So let's try to make it slightly more controlled and do, you know, have our base narrative record it. Um, and we'll have this mechanic that you alluded briefly in passing to the idea that there were a lot of puzzles <clears throat> in the beast. Uh, and one of the things we said about was the beast was sort of about what do you know? And the puzzles were often quite difficult because when 10,000 people are trying to solve them at any given time, <laughs> that'd be pretty hard. Mm-hmm. But it, it made for a sense that there was a lot of barrier to entry or it could be intimidating. Mm-hmm. So we decided instead of making the core what you know, it's where you are. So, hey, I'm in Vegas. There's one of these payphones just down the street from me. I don't have to be a super genius or, you know, read medieval loot tablature. I can just go <laughs> into this phone. And then what we discovered is people hated that. They really wanted us to be working frantically in real-time life. Uh, so about three weeks into I Love Bees, we had this terrible conversation. It was like, no, please, God, please don't make us go back there. We have to go back there. You know we have to go back. <laughs> oh, no, no. Okay, yes, fine. We'll do it. So we're back back on the 90-hour-a-week work plan. Oh. Um, just because it's the thing that people really enjoyed about that art form is that give and take. You know, mm-hmm. Um, now that we've, now that these experiences are over, I mean, there, we can only really talk about them, but is there a way to go back and try and re-experience some of the moments or, or is there so, an archive of the narrative or yeah. any of that? So there are, there are several archives of the things that attempt to archive the beast, but it's difficult because you know, you'd see the web page for the Hacker Underground, and then something would change in the story, so we'd change the web page. So mm-hmm. unless you yeah. have archived every version of the website sure. with date stamps and every version of every other site and how it was, and it's it's just hard to recreate that. Right. With I Love Bees, one of the things we were trying to do is say, hey, this radio drama can stand alone. Ten years later, in fact, they just... Last year, they released a 10-year anniversary sort of oh, wow. premium edition of the story of I Love Beast. So you can listen to the whole radio drama. You can download it, listen to it in your car. It, it's all out there. Interesting. Uh, with uh, the next one, or one of the next ones we did was uh, a collaboration with uh, Nine Inch Nails mm. for the Year Zero album. And the conceit was essentially that the internet of 2022 sort of crashed and fell through time and was lying like a broken glass all over the internet of 27. Uh, Mm. But the reason for that was to say everything you find all happened in the same moment of time. And what that means is that with the exception of a couple of things where the flash isn't working quite right, when you look at any website from year zero, now almost 10 years later, 
you are seeing exactly the same thing that players saw at that moment, and you okay many of the experiences that they had. You won't do it with that sense of thousands of crazy Nine Inch Nails fans exploring yeah. you at the same moment, but you will have that is the closest to a complete to a replayable ARG is the the stuff that's out there for um, the Nine Inch Nails experience. Mm-hmm. Okay. You used the term transmedia before, and I want to talk about Kathy's book because Kathy's book is really interesting because it, 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 it takes some of the elements in ARGs, but at the same time, it doesn't quite um, have that same puppet. I don't, I don't know. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a puppet master behind that. But how, how, um, how did Kathy's book come about? And what is it compared to an ARG? So um, Jordan and I were talking. He was saying, that basically, one of the problems we were trying to solve is the one that you just addressed, which is mm-hmm. um, the first ARGs were experiences um, and secondarily paid for with marketing money. And what that meant was like Woodstock, someone would come to us and say, I just heard about this thing, the beast. That sounds awesome. How do I play? And the answer was, you can't. It's over. Yeah. So, um, by what Jordan and I started talking about is that why don't we do something um, that is a story that is replayable, that you can hear about it six months later and still have the same experience. Um, and since I was a novelist and Jordan likes stories, we said, okay, well, why don't we make a book? We'll make a book, and you can buy the book now, or you can buy the book in six months, and it's not marketing-driven, which means the consumers can just pick it up whenever, um, and it has its own revenue model. Um, it's not dependent on the kindness of somebody else. Uh, we can just make it, uh, mm-hmm. and people can pay for it as entertainment. But it won't be just a book. It will be a book with a phone number on the cover that you can call while you're standing there in the bookstore and get part of the story. And all the the websites mentioned in the book are real and live and are still there to this day. Um, uh, If you get a copy of the book inside it, there are all sorts of physical artifacts like, you know, one of the things that one of the starting elements is that the main character, Kathy gets dumped by her boyfriend and inside the book, you can find a a ripped up photograph of the boyfriend with this phone number on the back. So if you piece the photograph together, you can get the phone number and you can call and find out whatever you find out. So it has a lot of these kinds of elements, but in a package such that if you went and found a copy of the book today, you could still kind of do the thing. Um, and then we had much more modest ways for um, people to engage, but uh, there was an online, uh, a set of online sites, and one of the things we did, the main character, Kathy, doodles and, and makes snarky comments, so the, the book is presented in a diary, which she has printed out off a computer, but then doodled all over. Uh-huh. Um, and there's lots of artwork in it, which was uh, formerly really interesting to be able to add art to a novel 
and figure out what to do with it. Yeah. Um, we put up an online uh, gallery where people could, with the second book, where people could submit their own artwork. And mm-hmm. then we took some of our favorite pieces of art that were submitted and actually included them in the paperback copy of the second book. So not mm-hmm. only were there fans, not only was there a fan site before, again, people were still doing this before Twitter existed, if you know. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but not only were we letting them dial a phone number and become part of the story, but actually their art was ending up in the physical book that other fans were buying, which right. was a nice loop. Like this 13 year old girl in Ireland who did this amazing piece of art, her art is now inside the book for everybody else to see. So yeah. It's that, that same instinct of trying to let the, the audience in. Yeah. It's a sense of participation. Yeah. I get it. So Kathy's book had this, these similar elements of like links to websites and, and, and things like that, but there was no, but there weren't any to push the narrative forward to actually learn more about Kathy's book. You didn't have to try and solve anything, right? It would just lead you and, and fill in the world or. Um, you, if you wanted, if you just wanted a, some cool artifacts Mm-hmm. and you wanted to paw through them and you'd get the idea that, huh, probably some of these, there's more to some of these characters than scenes. You could do that. Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. wanted to get obsessive about it and follow the clues um, hardcore and do some sort of analysis, you could learn some things that your fellow fans probably didn't know about mm-hmm. that were going to happen in the second book. Uh, mm mm-hmm. There is, for instance, a character who everyone thinks is dead in the first book who is not completely dead and people who chose to uh, really think hard and go through the various artifacts and websites would have known that before the second book came out. Uh How many books were there total? Three. Three. And um, there were three books, but there's also, uh, there was an iOS app. Right? Or was a mobile yeah, app? Yeah, at some point they, um, oh, well, deeper search. Well done. Yeah, the publisher <laughs> tried doing an interesting um, app again in the very first days of the App Store uh, uh-huh. that would sort of animate some of the illustrations and include some of the assets from the phone numbers um, and make it kind of a more multimedia thing. Uh, Interesting. So this wasn't initially conceived as a mobile app. It was it was a traditional book that had these elements built into it, and the app came as an afterthought. Yeah, that's funny because I I stumbled upon it the other direction. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> yeah. So I I thought it was actually um I thought it was mobile first, and that's very interesting. No. Huh. No. Um, started working on it. There was an app store. Right. Oh uh, yeah. Because yeah. Right. This is what two thousand seven. Two thousand six. Yeah, there wasn't much of an app store then, was there? <laughs> um, so, okay. I, I mean, how, how do you approach writing these kinds of narratives? Because like, at the end of the day, there's, 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 there's the one linear thread, but there's so many nonlinear paths and winding, twisty path, you know, paths that can take place. Like, how do you even like, keep this all together and, and, uh, in your head? And, and how do you approach writing this stuff? 
It's a really good question. Um, and it's hard to have a really good answer for. It's a bit sure. like saying to a fish, how do you swim? Um, I use a lot of, um, if you, I don't know if you garden at all, but if you plant, you know, beans or peas or whatnot, you, you generally put a trellis in the ground and then the bean plants crawl up it. I use a lot of trellising. I have a lot of structures. Um, so, and I, one of the things about writing that is going to be presented in a very unusual way is that it is helpful if the stories themselves are somewhat recognizable. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to make you do a jigsaw puzzle, doing a jigsaw puzzle of a cow is much more satisfying than doing a jigsaw puzzle of an object whose shape you do not recognize. Right. Um, because gotcha. there's no feeling of, oh, I get it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. In fact, one of the pleasures of working with extremely experimental storytelling is you can tell extremely basic stories. Like, you can tell boy meets girl, and it feels yeah. like something the world has never seen. Uh, right. So That's I, a very good point. I often have some scaffolding underneath all the storytelling that is, is fairly sturdy stuff that I know will work, you know, fairy tale or basic kind of Shakespearean plot. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I, I try to make sure that the, the narrative structure is strong and even recognizable. Um, you know, there's no, uh, uh, eternal triangle, right? Love triangle, not broke. Mm-hmm. And people understand why it matters and how it matters. So if you're asking them to run around to pay phones all over the world to put these snippets of story together, but then they get, oh my God, she's in love with these two guys and has to pick one. Uh-huh. And it has all the impact that that story always has, but it feels very fresh and new. Uh-huh. So the, the, the sh- I'm not, I feel like I'm not answering your question very well. Just to say, I try to keep some very fundamental and solid narrative mm-hmm. structures mm-hmm. and then let the fireworks be in the way they're built. Sure. Um, but make sure the core is sturdy or else yeah. it just falls apart. It's, it sounds to me like you'll have a series of, of waypoints, right? That you know the story is going to have to lead toward, yeah. but how it gets to them sure. is, is going to be influenced based on the medium. So an ARG the audience is going to be much more, uh, there's a lot of agency there, the user agency coming in there. And um, that's how it's going to direct towards that next milestone. Um, but those milestones are, are your sort of the, the formal narrative. Exactly. Um, and that can change too. You know, I mean, it's not like you can't adjust a milestone depending on a certain, you know, certain aspects of how the story may unfold, but um, you do have a clear uh, sort of path in mind, which is, yeah, that's interesting. There's, um, there's a, Thing you might be interested in if you haven't stumbled across it already. Um, I gave a, a talk at a conference called Power to the Pixel, uh, mm-hmm. which you, you may be able to find, uh, which I sort of semi-jokingly uh, <coughs> titled The Tyrant in Winter. 
um, <laughs> which is basically storytellers have to give up some of their power. I get it. So how do we give up as little as possible while keeping the rabble satisfied? Yeah. And That's funny. It's a lot about the things you're talking about, about how do you negotiate within the audience so that they see that the story is responding to them and yet the story is crafted in a way that feels powerful and true to itself. Mm-hmm. And the limitations of... I can demonstrate probably the the limitations of audience agency by saying, hey, so wouldn't it be awesome if we did, like, I don't know, Macbeth, but the audience got to vote on the end? <laughs> Some part of you probably is saying no uh, yeah. for an excellent reason. Another way of putting that is, how many choose-your-own-adventure books do you own? When was the last time that you read one? Mm-hmm. Um, Choose your own adventure narratives are fundamentally compromised um, mm-hmm. because fiction, the, the fundamental understanding of fiction is these are real things that really happened to imaginary people. Um, the contract we make is to pretend that this is real. And when my choice changes the narrative about these people over here, uh, it's like having a novel where at the bottom of each page it says, we're just making this up, okay? It consistently undermines the realness of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. It's a different kind of pleasure, but I would argue that over there live video games where you can just go ahead and give that pleasure of agency to yeah. X. Um, every time you are empowering the audience, you have to be careful about the cost you are paying in the back end of, of leaning always perilously into, and it was all a dream territory. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so how, how many people worked on Kathy's book? Were you the sole writer for it? Or? Yeah, I was the sole writer. Um, so uh, Jordan and I would talk over the stories. Um, and Jordan also paid to make all the cool-ass stuff. Mm-hmm. And I worked with uh, a woman named Kathy, um, uh, who did all the art. And so... Gotcha. Um, so it was a pretty small team yeah. then. Yeah, that's 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 cool. Um, so what's do you do you know what Jordan and Elon are doing today? Like what they're after? Oh yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Jordan. So where are we now? The story so far. Uh, Jordan currently has a game company called Hairbrain Schemes. Okay. Which is putting oh. products for Shadowrun, which is a Jordan. Yeah, I've totally put that. I didn't know that was him. That's and awesome. BattleTech, which is a Jordan thing. Jordan is Jordan is in the Gaming Hall of Fame for a reason. Like he has made lots of stuff that you have heard of. Yeah. Uh, also, Mage Knight and Wiz Kids and all those clickable figure RPGs. That's all Jordan's invention. 
um, uh-huh. uh, the hero clicks with the superhero versions. Um, Ilan and I were working at uh, Xbox Entertainment Studios um, for another one of Microsoft's periodic forays into <laughs> until they decided not to do that anymore. Um, and uh, Ilan and uh, a friend of ours named Shane was also at Xbox who had worked with us on a bunch of projects, including doing a little bit of the art on Kathy's book because Kathy is his wife. Um, so Shane and Kathy both worked on that. Uh, Shane and Ilan in the last sort of couple of days of uh, Xbox were fooling around with a card game when they decided to shut down the studio. And they came up with a, a card game that was pretty fun um, uh, and worked on the rules a bit and then uh, released it uh, with some different art as the game Exploding Kittens. Oh, wow. Which... Uh, that's Elon Lee. Oh, my God. I knew I knew his name from somewhere. That's Elon I, I can't... Oh. Yeah, no, I own Exploding Kittens, and I followed that whole path. Okay, okay. duh. That is Elon. That is Elon from The Beast. Brilliant. I had no idea he was tied to The Beast. That's well, that's funny. That he was really oh, no. he's linked to The Beast. <laughs> Elon Lee is The Beast. Like that's he. Uh, it was Jordan's idea, and I contributed a lot. But Elon is the guy who understood that thing. He was the beast yeah. part of it. Yeah, he teamed up with the guy from The Oatmeal. No, to, right. Yeah, for, that's for, crazy. That's right. So at this point in our conversation, I asked Sean to make sure he was good on time. And we got into his work at Magic Leap. And I really hope you stick around to hear this next part because we're going to be going into his history with Neil Stevenson and the future of fiction. It's really cool. How did you and Neil Stevenson first cross paths? Like, how did you get to know him? Uh, so I was a science fiction author, um, and I was living in Vancouver, BC. Every mm-hmm. year there is, or was at the time, a big um, multi-author book signing at the University of Washington, um, <laughs> which uh, I was invited to, and I drove down with my friend Sean Russell, who's a fantasy writer who is also from Vancouver. And there are like 25 writers there, and they see you, they make a square full of tables, and they seat you alphabetically. So mm-hmm. Sean Russell and Sean Stewart were seated on either side of this guy whose name comes between Russell and Stewart that we had never heard of. <laughs> and he had a new book called Snow Crash. Yeah, that people seemed real excited about, though I had never heard of it um, yeah. at that time. So we made friends sitting there because of the alphabet, and have That's... remained friends ever since. Right, gotta love serendipity. Um, yeah. So okay, so now that brings us to today, because now you're doing some work with Neil at uh, Magic Leap, and I know you're not really allowed to talk about it, but for those who don't know what Magic Leap is, it's basically a magical leap in the world of augmented reality. It is. Um, mind what i've seen of it i don't know too much of it but what i've seen of it it is absolutely mind-blowing um and and it seems light years literally light years beyond uh things like oculus rift and and htc vive and and those other sort of vr experiences and even hololens 
I think it's more in line with HoloLens, right? Yeah. It's an yeah. augmentation. Yeah. So um, the basic difference between AR and VR is that VR, you put a box on your head, and when the box is on your head, you're in Westeros or Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, with AR, um, you put glasses on your face, and you're still in your real world, in your living room, whatever, but you know, Westeros comes to you. Uh, mm-hmm. Amazing things. It, in a utilitarian sense, anything you now look at to do on your phone, imagine not having to look at your phone. Imagine you just yeah. look at your television and pull up the programming guide without having to tap into your phone. I would like to see mm. what's on channel 54. Uh, right. But from the point of view of game design, you know, you could. You're looking around your house, and there's a leprechaun on your kitchen counter, and hygiene sinsu. Um, yeah. It's an interesting space to me because it's the ARG space, right? That yeah. is, you are you, you are in your own environment, and yet the story is reaching out to include you. Yep. And in that sense, it's AR and VR are often talked about together, but are actually kind of opposites. Interesting. Yeah. Well, would you, would you consider, so I know there's the, there's the idea of pervasive versus immersive fiction. Would that be kind of the difference between those two mediums is that one is pervasive where it, it, it injects itself into your reality and the other one's immersive where it completely hijacks and takes over your reality. Yeah. I think that's fair. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so, so what's your project? Tell me, I want to know everything. Spill the beans. (laughs) What are you doing with magic leap? Uh, well, I'd so love to tell you. Oh, okay. Fine. But, um, I'm working with Neil Stevenson in, uh, a fun fictional world that started as Neil's brainchild and that we've been working on together with a few people that, um, let me put this sideways. Sure. We did a pitch a few years ago for when uh, I had a startup that was also doing some augmented reality stuff. We did a pitch for something called the Lost Letter Academy, which was for everyone who woke up on their 11th birthday sort of hoping they would get a letter inviting them to Hogwarts, but it didn't happen for them. Yeah. This is for you. Um... It was your chance to enter uh, uh, the wizarding world, even though you actually live in a split-level duplex somewhere in Toledo, Ohio. You'd be able to look through your phone and see the things that the muggles around you could not see and do things Uh, that you could not do. So if instead of the world of Harry Potter, you imagine the kinds of world that Neil Stevenson might think about, but you take that same instinct that instead of watching Harry go to Hogwarts or watching Lucy step through the wardrobe into Narnia, you're the one who gets go. That's what I'm building. Oh my God. So this is, so when I first reached out to you and then you mentioned that you were, you know, working with Neil, or you mentioned that I read that you were working at Magic Leap and I was like, I thought Neil, cause he was the chief futuristic officer over there. And I was like, I didn't know if there was a connection. I had just finished rereading Snow Crash, like literally a week before reaching out to you. And, um, I find it absolutely 
fascinating and uh that that you are it sounds to me like you're embarking on taking what neil had proposed in snow crash or at least a piece of it and actually making it real in the in the real world and actually working with the guy who who you know you know made up all that stuff and now you actually get to bring it to life which is boggling is that is that kind of what's going on a little bit yeah we've gone from writing science fiction to being science fiction it's fairly cool yeah that's pretty awesome um okay so i know we're about to run out of time here but um i see you've got another product called ink spotters what what's that all about so um i have i have made i love your shirt by the way oh thank you Darth vader hedging a uh Death Star. A topiary Death Star, yeah. A topiary Death Star. I'm a a fairly avid gardener, and mm-hmm. I wrote a Star Wars book. So, so that's the perfect. Saw this shirt and thought there can't be many people who are more appropriate. Yeah. Yes, the only you know really Yoda centered. The Ink Spotters idea is uh, I have over the last fifteen years written a lot of the most incomprehensibly complicated entertainment ever created. (laughs) I woke up one morning with an idea for nonlinear narrative and thought, I think my mother-in-law would do this. And I thought, you you should hold on to that idea. Um, Because right now... If you think of a of a jigsaw puzzle, that's a very satisfying form of gameplay for pictures. It's very spatial and visual. And I basically woke up thinking, hey, I think I know a way to make a jigsaw puzzle, but for stories. I think people would like that. So I'm making jigsaw puzzles for stories, where instead of adding a visual piece to a visual piece... Um, you can sort of put together uh, very simple pitches. If you imagine a graphic novel, say we're in the case we did a Sherlock Holmes story. Mm-hmm. Imagine you had uh, a fun, exciting Sherlock Holmes story and you did it as a graphic novel. Uh, and then you took all the pages of the graphic novel and you turned them upside down. Um, you turn them on their faces so you can see them except for one. And on that one page, it was like Sherlock, and he's sitting in an armchair with his fingers steepled, and there's a bullet going by his shoulder into the armchair, and he says, and that is how I understood you had poisoned the dog and stolen Lady <laughs> Vermeer's pearls. Uh-huh. And I'm going to give you a really simple mechanic, which is, pick one word you think might order the story, and you might pick uh-huh. Windermere, or pearls, or dog, or poison, or gun, or Sherlock. Uh-huh. And Try that one word, and if you say dog, then uh, you'd fly back um, to, let's say, upside down page number six and turn it right side up. And on it, you would see the maid saying, no, no, your ladyship, I never took them, I promise. I was just out walking spot. And you'd think, okay, there's a maid. And, uh, okay, I'm going to try spot and 
you'll get page five, and there's the maid out walking spots. I see. You have to okay. Get back to where the Duchess is right away. It's a Duchess, and that gives you page eleven. Yeah. And eventually, yeah. when you finish this. You've uncovered the entire comic, and you've put it together yourself. And there is your Sherlock Holmes story. Yes, yeah, like an archaeological dig. <laughs> it is, of course, exactly an ART. Yeah, and have have you played the game Her Story? Uh, I have now. I was about six months yeah. into building these um, when someone said you should look at this thing. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah it's a similar. But I think the, the, there it's similar, but it's it, I, there it, it's not you know. similarities. But yeah, yeah, there's a ballpark. There. Yeah. Sure. That's that's really cool. I love that. I love that 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 this is even that you're even exploring it. All right. So, um, Sean, uh, I I can't even like really express how how thankful I am for you. You know, talking with me for this time. But where can where can people find more about you? Uh, such a good question. Um, well, SeanStewart.org is a website that tries to keep track of the novels and the um, interactive work since many, many people who know me in one place have no idea. Like lots of game people have no idea. I've published 12 novels and lots of novel readers mm-hmm. have no idea. I've done yeah. fine stuff. So there's, there's one place where you can sort of go look at that. And every now and then I lob in the occasional essay. Like, uh, last year I wrote one about called, um, flash mobs, urinals and the meaning of art. <laughs> uh, uh, so there's there you can look at ink, ink spotters uh, inkspotters.com it's ink hyphen spotters um, if you want to know what the new thing is about and other than that mm-hmm. I'm certainly ambiently available on the web because it works that way um, yeah anyway it was a real pleasure and thanks very much for um, wanting to talk with me oh yeah no absolutely my, my pleasure all the way and, and thank you so much A huge thank you to Sean Stewart. And if you want to support the show, please head over to iTunes and leave a review. That always makes me happy and helps spread the word. Um, And please tell your friends, family. And um, once again, thanks for listening. The ink has run dry. See you next time.